0: everybody, and welcome back. I'm Sheena Williams with Krav Gas Salem and The Art of Badass. I'm welcomed, uh, joined today by Andrew Branca, who is an internationally recognized expert on self-defense. He's an author of one of my very favorite books, one that I cannot recommend highly enough, The Law of Self-Defense. Please pick it up. Uh, and you can find it in a number of different places. Uh, he's practiced law for 20 years, Uh, and he's also a competitive shooter, so he understands the shooting and firearms world, obviously. So let's talk a little bit more about you, Andrew, and uh, welcome to the show.
1: Well, very pleased to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, You encapsulated it uh, pretty well, actually. Uh, So I'm an attorney. Of course, uh, I specialize in use of force law, meaning defense of yourself, defense of others, defense of property... And that's all I do. Uh, So I don't have a traditional, generalized criminal defense practice. I don't do DWIs. I don't do shoplifting cases. I don't do anything except use of force cases. And in fact, I don't take clients directly. So all my clients are other attorneys. In effect, I'm a legal consultant to other attorneys. Uh, So when people find themselves compelled to use force and self-defense, and then unfortunately face criminal charges, uh, they retain a local attorney wherever they are. And if they and their attorney think it's a good idea. Uh, For me to consult in the case, then their attorney calls me, and my client is actually their attorney. Uh, But that's about uh, probably 20% of what we do. The other 80% is trying to educate people before they get into a fight so that they know where the actual legal boundaries are for the use of force. Because if they can stay within those legal boundaries, the prospects of facing criminal charges are enormously diminished. So just like people train for a fight before they get into a fight, so they're prepared. For that physical conflict, we spend a lot of our efforts training people to be prepared for the legal fight ahead of time. So they're well positioned to win that legal fight.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, I tell my students of self-defense, you know, I'm not just here to keep you physically safe, but financially, legally, morally, ethically, emotionally, all those things, because there is so much that ensues after a situation like this. You know, one of the things um, that struck me in your book that I just enjoyed, for those of you who haven't read it yet, a good portion of it is exactly what he's talking about, but the back half, and most of you at home can see this is it's broken down state by state so it doesn't matter what state you live in you can really follow along with these laws and if you're somebody who travels quite frequently you can look up laws of the yes, states that you go to so uh, again I, I can't recommend it enough um quick question for you i know you get this probably all the time um what are some of the most common myths or misunderstandings of self-defense laws that you run into and drive you most crazy
1: uh, well, most of what people know about self-defense law is, is unfortunately, bad information because of where they learn it. They learn it; their their understanding of the self-defense law um, from a lot of sources that are bad sources, and unfortunately, most sources are bad sources. Uh, whatever you learn from uh, your concealed carry instructor, uh, high probability it's bad information. Not because the instructor is defective in any way, but because he was not or she was not taught uh, law-based self-defense boundaries. Um, if Anything that's on the internet has to be presumed to be 100% wrong until proven otherwise. Anything you read in the media has to be presumed to be wrong until proven otherwise, because I've never seen them get it right. And unfortunately, a lot of people learn their self-defense law from sources like the media, uh, where they hear about a use of force event. Somebody shot somebody with a gun or threatened somebody with a gun, and no criminal charges were brought against that person, and they say, well, that must mean what they did was lawful. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that at all. Uh, The authorities frequently use their discretion not to bring charges in circumstances where they could if they wanted to. So just because they chose not to in one instance doesn't mean that identical conduct in another instance won't result in criminal charges. Uh, The only law that matters for self-defense purposes, is the actual law, the statutes, the court decisions, the jury instructions, because if you're in a courtroom, nobody cares about what you read on the internet or what your firearms instructor told you or what you read in the newspaper. They only care about what the law actually is. And in my experience, it's, it's not so much a case that the self-defense community doesn't know a lot about self-defense law. They often do know a lot, but a lot of what they know is bad information. It's things they think they're allowed to do, that, in fact, is not lawful. And frankly, w- one of the places this comes up most frequently is actually in the uh, the hand-to-hand self-defense community, the martial arts self-defense community, uh, because there's, there's often a sense that people feel, well, I'm not using a gun, I'm not using a knife, I'm just using my hands. Uh, therefore, what I'm doing uh, must be some lesser degree of force, must be non-deadly force, much decreased legal liability, much lower threshold for me to use my bare hands than a gun. And that can be true, but it's not necessarily true. There's plenty of martial arts techniques that qualify as the use of deadly force. Um, And so you have to meet that much higher threshold, the same threshold you would need to meet if you were using a gun or a knife to defend yourself.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing to mention on that, you know, you talk about concealed carry instructors and martial arts instructors and being just misinformed, which is, it happens. And that's, understandable to a certain extent. One thing that I love that you've done is you've actually put together a program for people who are instructors, specifically concealed carry, but I think it applies for martial arts. As I'm both, I teach both concealed carry and martial arts, that you can take them through and teach them actual law so that they have the answers and can actually teach a little bit better. Can you teach a little bit more uh, or talk a little bit more about the program that you do offer?
1: Oh, we have so many programs. Uh, (laughs) What we call our... um, our uh, core class, our level one core classes, our full day course of instruction, uh, just for anybody who wants to learn the legal boundaries of self-defense. Mostly, it's people who concealed carry, but frankly, we get a lot of um, a lot of uh, law enforcement officers come in because they're not really taught this stuff either. Believe it or not, uh, most of what cops are taught in terms of use of force law is not intended to protect them from criminal liability if they're charged in a shooting, for example. Uh, It's intended to protect their department from civil liability when the department gets sued because the cop uses force against another person. And those are two completely different worlds. Whether or not the cop's going to prison or whether or not the department's getting sued, the cop's primary concern should be whether he's going to prison. Uh, for the rest of his life. Let the department worry about itself. But of course, when the department's paying for your training, the training you get is the training the department wants you to get, which is primarily intended to protect them. Um, We also get a lot of lawyers. Uh, Our full day course is uh, accredited for continuing legal education for defense attorneys, prosecutors, judges, uh, because we're not really taught this stuff in law school. And in my three years of law school, we spent maybe five minutes talking about self-defense law. That was it. Uh, and there's not a lot of good places for even lawyers to go uh, to learn what the actual law of self-defense actually is. So we have our level one class. We don't do too many uh, travel classes anymore. We were doing like 50 a year, but I, I just got tired of the travel. We do have it as a, as a DVD that people can access. Uh, it's also available online streamed. Uh, three or four times a year, we do a live level one class over the webinar using the same platform you and I are using here. In fact, we're doing one of those. uh, I'm not sure when this will air, but we're doing one Saturday, April 25th, which as we're speaking is the next day is tomorrow. Uh, But if folks missed that, we have a couple more coming up in 2020, uh, where they can take the course in a live format, plenty of opportunity for Q&A. Uh, Plenty of opportunity for chatting with me personally, uh, but they don't have to travel anywhere and I don't have to travel anywhere. We just do it over the computer. And that's a full day class. So it's about six or seven hours, depending on how many questions we get. Uh, The most comprehensive education in self-defense law available anywhere. And I include law schools in that. Uh, I know of no other place where you can get that level of education. The only more comprehensive form would be our own law self-defense instructor program, which is about 15 hours of instruction. It's really the equivalent of a, a law school seminar on self-defense law that would take, course, take place over a semester uh, if law schools taught this stuff at that level, which unfortunately they don't. Um, and then we also supplement that level one class, that full day class, with state specific courses that, again, are available as DVD or online streamed. And that's another couple of hours of a deep dive into each state's. There's a separate class for each state. Each state's uh, specific statutes, court decisions, jury instructions on use of force law in that particular jurisdiction. So uh, the first thing we actually tell people to do or suggest they do is just go to our website because we have so much blog content. We put up hours of content every week. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the most recent hour or two of content that we put up uh, is always available for free. Um, So people can see what we do, see how we approach the subject, get some exposure to what uh, we communicate, what we teach without having to spend a penny. Uh, And that's just at lawofselfdefense.com. And uh, if people want to consume that content forever and never pay us anything, that's totally fine. That's we're we're happy to do that. Uh, In our experience, however, once people get a taste of what we do, then they like to um, access more of our content and, and spend a little money to do so.
0: Absolutely. I'm 100% guilty. (laughs) You know, on on that subject matter, you're talking a little bit more about some of the posts and the things that you do. You do the weekly case of the week videos, which are fantastic, and they're so in-depth, and I enjoy them every time they come out. Is there one that sticks out in your mind as a favorite or unique in a way that you could share with us?
1: One particular case?
0: Yeah. Are you highlighted uh, during uh, week, your weekly cases? Of the, yeah, your, it,
1: would, it would be very difficult to pull out just one because uh, we actually... <laughs> so review,
0: many.
1: Yeah, there's about... So we our Cases of the Week show is a show we do every Tuesday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, live on, on Facebook Live. And then we have the recorded replay available on our blog uh, after the live broadcast. Um, but what we do every week is we review all the use of force court decisions, appellate court decisions, from all over the country for the previous week. so. I personally literally read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of appellate court decisions uh, on use of force law every year. But every week we review the 50 or 60 is a typical number that come out every week. And we choose the three or four or five that I think are most interesting, most educational, most informative. And we take those 20 or 30 pages of legalese because – Let's face it, court decisions are written by lawyers for lawyers, right? So they're often thick with legalese, very difficult to understand if you're not a legal professional. We take those 20 or 30-page decisions and we translate them into plain English, uh, just the key facets for use of force law purposes, so people can understand how the actual law is applied to actual people who've been involved in actual use of forced defense. In our, in our experience, that's really the only way to make this informationable actionable for people, useful for people in the act- context of an actual fight. If, heaven forbid they find themselves in that situation. Um, but because we, we're, every week we're selecting the three or four cases out of 60 or 70 that are most interesting, they're really all interesting. <laughs> all the ones we cover are interesting. Uh, the boring ones we leave out. So it would be very difficult to uh, exclude them. But those cases of the week shows are on our blog and we leave them up for at least an entire week. Uh, sometimes two weeks. So people can always just go to our blog, lawselfdefense.com, find the most recent one or two of those cases of the week shows, and just dive in and enjoy it and uh, not have to pay us a penny. It doesn't cost anything.
0: They really are so fantastic and in depth, and you know, one of my favorite things that uh, that I found, especially reading your book and listening to some of those, is that you are really truthfully able to break it down and uh, make it understandable and why it's understandable, and uh, it's so greatly appreciated. Um, You know, one thing that you do a lot um, is there's lots of posts that you put out, whether it's through your personal page whether it's through uh, the Law of Self-Defense page. Uh, You did post a Facebook post the other day uh, talking about not subjecting yourself to the legal system because it's flawed, right? It's it's created by... Humans who are just flawed in general Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't really so much a dig on the the legal system It's just that there are so many mitigating factors and different things that can come up Even if you're a hundred percent innocent all the way through you're still at risk of being found guilty or charged with something and I think the way that you worded that post was so clear and eloquently put. Uh, I I was even reading through some of the comments where people were like, yeah, I'm law enforcement of X amount of years and this is the most clear I've ever seen anybody post it. And I think that just really speaks to your in-depth knowledge, truthfully.
1: Well, I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a, uh, I don't know if it's because of people, most people, uh, fortunately are not criminals, so they don't get involved in the criminal justice system and they learn about the criminal justice system mostly from TV and movies. And they'd like to think that it's some kind of a perfect algorithm or a machine where you put facts and evidence in one end and you crank a handle and you get perfect justice out the other end. But of course the criminal justice system is, is just people. It's just human beings and it has all the weaknesses and biases and sins and failings of all human beings. Um, So it's not, it's far from being a perfect machine. It's a very imperfect machine. Now, I I happen to believe the American system of criminal justice is the best ever invented, but it's still an incredibly noisy machine with poorly filed gears and um, steam leaking out and mistakes happen and poor judgment is exercised. I mean, I've seen people, defendants who should not have gone to prison, go to jail, go to prison for the rest of their lives because they had a bad attorney a bad defense attorney who I watched just choke on that case. And that, that shouldn't happen, uh, but it does happen. Judges make bad rulings. Prosecutors make bad calls in what cases they want to bring to trial in the first place. And we, we tell every client whose case I consult on that, look, you could be the most innocent client we've ever had in my office, but if we put you in front of a jury, there's a 10% chance you're getting convicted because that's just the, the, the tolerances within the machine. That's the noise within the machine and people need to understand this, you could, do, you could do everything right and still end up getting convicted and going to prison for much of the rest of your life. That can happen. Innocent people do sometimes go to prison. So people need to really think carefully to themselves about under what circumstances are they prepared to subject themselves to that risk, where even if you do everything perfect, maybe it's not a high risk you go to prison, but the risk exists. The risk is never zero. Uh, I tell people this all the time. The moment you go hands-on in that fight, you've just incurred two risks you were not incurring a moment before. Um, A greater than zero risk that you're going to die in the fight. I don't care how good you are with your hands or a knife or a gun. There's no guarantee you win the fight. You could lose that fight. Now, we get training and we learn martial arts and we learn how to shoot guns. So we can reduce that risk as close to zero as possible. But it's never zero. And the same is true of the legal fight. Uh, All the training we do at Law of Self-Defense, all the free content that we put out to people to educate them on where the legal boundaries really are, we can help people get those legal risks really close to zero. But they're never zero. There's always a greater than zero risk you could end up going to prison. So we urge people to think to themselves, what if the worst happens in the legal fight? What if you do end up getting convicted, even though you did everything right, under what circumstances would going to prison for 10 or 20 years still have been worth it because those circumstances do exist, right? If the alternative is getting killed or raped or maimed or having any of those things happen to a person you care about, uh, yes, it, I'd rather go to prison for 20 years than have my wife murdered. Um, but it's actually, once you get past death, maiming, rape of yourself or someone you care about, list of things that most people are willing to spend 20 years in prison for is pretty short. Um, for me, it ends right about that point.
0: And they're not always that clear cut either. I mean, you don't know exactly well that person is intending or this is where this is leading You know, so it's it's one of those things we get we get this idea from watching TV and movies that we know exactly what the bad guy is going to be thinking and it's going to be in this dark alley in the middle of the night. And that's that's very rarely the case. As somebody who's had to go hands-on with people carrying weapons and, and trying to hurt me, I mean, it's not like you see on TV. And I don't care how much training and skill set you have, um, you know, things start to kind of fall off the wagon when when a weapon gets involved and, uh, you know, people get emotional or they're high on something. It's, it's just not what we see on TV. And it's so important that we really educate ourselves and have a deeper understanding of the law.
1: Yeah, and most people really don't adequately mentally prepare is the problem. Uh, Most normal law-abiding people who get in trouble on these issues, they don't get in trouble on the extreme ends of the use of force continuum, right? If you're not facing any threat, you just go about your day, right? It's a non-issue. If somebody jumps out of an alley and is coming at you with a machete raised over their head, well, that's not a lot of complicated decision-making there, you just defend yourself. Uh, Where people get in trouble is in between those two extremes, what I call the zone of ambiguity, where it's unclear what's happening. It's uncertain what the threat is or how much of a threat it is. And because they have imperfect information and because they haven't thought through these scenarios before, Um, they get overloaded in terms of mental bandwidth, they can't make decisions, and then abruptly they're compelled to make a decision, and often it's a bad decision, a decision, you know, we don't tend to make better decisions under stress, we tend to make worse decisions under stress, Uh, and the only way to really mitigate that is through training, Uh, physical training, so you don't have to expend mental bandwidth on what you're doing physically, all that should be automatic. And also mental training. So you don't have to use a lot of bandwidth trying to figure out, all right, this is a totally novel situation to me. I have no idea what to do. Most criminal attacks are not totally novel. They're things that have happened to other people that have been reported in the news that others have experienced. And just like uh, aircraft pilots learn from other pilots' accidents, we can learn from other people's Interactions with criminal predators out in society. And by learning that, we prepare our brains, we facilitate our ability to process that kind of attack should it happen to us.
0: Oh, 100%. And on top of it, You know, not only continuing to educate yourself, I continue to remind my students, the laws are ever changing. Just because you learned it in your concealed carry class 10 years ago, doesn't mean things are exactly the same way today. So it is 100% your responsibility to stay updated on the laws in in your area.
1: Yeah, so I, I would put it a little differently. Gun laws, weapons laws change all the time. Uh, it's impossible to keep up with those. I don't, I don't think <laughs> anybody could do that on a 50-state basis, to be honest with you. I certainly don't try. So I always tell people, uh, I clarify, my area of expertise is use of force law, meaning when can you use force, not gun law or weapons law or what permits you need or where you're allowed to carry. I know that stuff about as much as I need to know it as a person who carries a gun every day for personal protection. So I know what I need to know about gun law for me, but I would not claim any particular degree of expertise there. Gun law changes all the time. Weapons law changes all the time. Self-defense law changes only rarely. Uh, it's pretty steady, and in fact, it's about 80% the same across the 50 states. So it's, And the reason for that is use of force law, self-defense law, is very, very old law. It's as old as human beings have existed, uh, because human beings have always had to defend themselves from, from other human beings. Uh, so our American foundations for self-defense law go back all the way to ancient Greek and Roman times and more recently to old English common law before we were even a United States of America. So the good news is that self-defense law in America is pretty stable. In fact, it's not really all that complicated. In fact, let me mention this. We have a, an infographic that we make available to people. Uh, we call it the five elements of self-defense law infographic. It's free. People can download it at lawselfdefense.com. Slash elements, And these five elements are the five components of any self-defense claim under American law. I don't care what state you live in, they all use the same five element framework. They all have their own statutes and jury instructions and court decisions, but that underlying conceptual framework is the same. The good news is there's not 500 elements that you need to keep in mind. There's not 50, there's only five, sometimes not even five, because sometimes one or more of those five elements can be legally waived or doesn't apply in a particular circumstance, but the most you need to worry about is five. So the framework is relatively simple. where people get in trouble is it's like if you take any kind of self-defense training, like if you take a a gun class for a weekend, right? So two days you're shooting a gun, you go through 500 rounds, a thousand rounds, whatever. At the end of that second day, you're pretty good with that gun. But if you don't touch that gun again for a month or six months or a year, those skills disappear. They vaporize. Um, The same is true in the ability to have your understanding of the law actionable for you in a crisis. If you've taken a class, one of our classes, Law of Self-Defense Level 1 class, at the end of that class, you will know more about self-defense law than most attorneys you will run into, for sure. Uh, but if that's your only exposure, if you never think about these issues again for a month or six months or a year that knowledge is gone, or at least it's so rusted that it's not actionable for you in a crisis. So one of the biggest things we try to do is not just expose people to kind of that foundational learning in our level one class, but continued exposure to the law in small doses over long periods of time so that the information remains fresh in their minds. And when it's fresh in your mind, it is actionable and does help guide your decisions in self-defense into productive directions.
0: Wonderful. So speaking on those five elements specifically, innocence, imminence, uh, proportionality, there we go, sorry, avoidance, and uh, reasonableness. Of those things, you obviously talk about those things pretty frequently and explain them very often. Is there one you really like to teach? Uh, just, Just it's fun for you. Not that it has more weight, just that it's fun.
1: Yeah, so one of the most common questions I always get is, well, there's these five elements. Which one do people screw up the most? <laughs> and unfortunately, they mess all of them yeah. up. I mean, every single one. Um, and just, again, people can download that infographic at lawselfdefense.com slash elements. But I'll give a brief description of the five elements now just for purposes of our discussion so people can follow along. Um The elements, again, are innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. Innocence meaning that you cannot have been the initial aggressor in the fight. The initial aggressor cannot claim self-defense as justification for their use of force. Sounds pretty obvious, right? But unfortunately, well-intentioned people mess up their claim of self-defense by actually having been or be perceived as, remember, there's no absolute truth in these cases, right? Uh, Be perceived as the initial aggressor in the confrontation. Uh, Imminence has to do with the requirement that the threat you're defending yourself against is either actually occurring or immediately about to occur. It can't be some past threat that's over. It can't be some future speculative threat that might or might not ever happen. It has to be something that must be defended against right now. Uh, Proportionality has to do with the degree of force involved. Is it a non deadly force confrontation or a deadly force confrontation? If you're only being threatened with non deadly force, then going to the gun, going to deadly force is not a lawful response. So you have to make make sure your defensive force is proportional to the threat you're facing. Um, Avoidance has to do with whether or not your jurisdiction imposes or strongly encourages that you take advantage of a safe avenue of retreat before you're privileged to use force in self-defense. There's about 14 states that impose that kind of legal duty to retreat before you can defend yourself. Uh, And reasonableness has to do with how you're perceiving uh, the threat. If you're perceiving it both, um, you have a genuine subjective belief in the need to act in self-defense, but also that that subjective genuine good faith belief is objectively reasonable that a hypothetical reasonable and prudent person had they been in your circumstances would have shared that genuine good faith belief in other words an irrational belief in the need to act in self-defense cannot justify the use of defensive force so i just gave all those five elements in a nutshell right just a couple of minutes that's almost the entirety of the law of self-defense right there So the law itself is not that complicated. What is complicated is the real world. What is complicated is the the time, place, and manner of attack can be incredibly varied. Uh, And that confuses people. It overwhelms people. It consumes so much of their mental bandwidth that they find it impossible to make decisions in compliance with those five elements. And by the way, if you can do that, If you can stay within those five elements, your prospects for getting convicted are awfully low. They're really close to zero because most people don't know this, but once you've raised a legal defense of self-defense, the prosecution has to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. That's really hard for them to do unless you give them the means to do that, unless you violate one of those five elements. If you do that, then it's an easy conviction. But if you don't do that, it's a hard conviction. And if it's a hard conviction, the prospects of the prosecutor making the effort are pretty darn low.
0: Absolutely. And I think that all goes back to kind of your tagline as well. Just, uh, you know, is carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict, right? right? I mean, it it all comes back down to protecting you. You know, I uh, watched you this past week um, do a podcast with Warrior Poet, and you guys kind of got into a great discussion about kind of what it's like for things like jury selection and, you know, how that kind of all comes into play. And one of the things that you highlighted that I thought was fantastic was how many people get out of jury duty.
1: (laughs) So who's left, right? Who's left to be on your jury? Correct. Uh, It's not going to be a peer in the way most of us think of peers. Someone who has our life experience, who has our training, who has our expertise. Uh, none of that applies. All, all, all we mean by a jury of your peers is someone who's, you know, in the pool of people who can be lawfully called for jury duty. Mostly they have a driver's license or some kind of, you know, government flag on living in the same jurisdiction or the relevant jurisdiction. And of course, that could be a huge factor as well. Um, you know, the, the United States is not homogenous in terms of culture or crime rates or perceptions on, on guns or violence. Um, And you may live, for example, in a very safe community that believes strongly in the right of citizens to defend themselves against criminal predators, even to the point of using deadly defensive force. And that's great if you have to defend yourself in that jurisdiction, and that's where your jury is coming from. But what if you're attacked in a different jurisdiction that has a very different jury pool, that doesn't like guns, doesn't like people using force to defend themselves, or doesn't believe that you were defending yourself uh, against a member of their community? Right? You're, you're essentially a foreigner in their community. Uh, the mere fact that it happened someplace else uh, changes the legal dynamics considerably. Not necessarily in terms of the black letter law, but remember, the criminal justice system is not a machine, it's humans. So it changes things in terms of how that law is going to be applied in a particular circumstance.
0: Oh, absolutely. And you know, I talk to my students about this on a regular basis. You know, I'm in Oregon. And so I tell people, imagine having a use of force situation in Portland. I think most people kind of have a good picture of what Portland looks like. And then try anything on the east side of the mountains where it's very farmland people are a lot more sparse, you know, you're gonna be looked at very, very differently. And, you know, I get, and you've probably heard this ridiculous saying all the time, right? I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by six. And every time I hear that, I'm like, you know, there's probably a book you should read because uh, your information, I think, is a little skewed. Um, I don't I don't want to be tried or carried. Like, <laughs> if we can just avoid that in general, I, I would be really, really appreciative. And, you know, on that topic, you do something better than I think most people do. And that is, you really talk a lot about avoidance. Uh, In your own words, can you tell us why avoidance is just so important?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've touched on it, really. And it's just that um, the the criminal justice system is very unpredictable. So you could do everything right and still go to prison. If you instead have the option of safely avoiding, and it's always safely avoiding. I don't want people to increase their jeopardy, um, increase their risk. Uh, But if you can, with safety, avoid having to get into the physical confrontation, well, then your risk of dying in the fight is 0%, and your risk of going to prison is 0%. And that's the mission, folks. The mission is not uh, your pride or teaching someone else a lesson or being right. Being right is overrated, folks. The mission is to get home safely, get your loved ones home safely. And there's been plenty of times where I've been in a movie theater and somebody started an argument, even if it didn't involve me or a restaurant, something started going sideways. And I've just left because I don't want to be in that environment. It's not worth it to me. Um, Even even a modest risk that I might be engaged is enough to get me to go someplace else because, folks, for for normal law-abiding people – the best way to win a fight is to not be there, is to be someplace else. If you're someplace else, you can't get hurt, you can't get killed, and you can't be compelled to hurt or kill someone else and face the prospect of prison afterwards. Just don't be there. Stay in safe places. Uh, avoid unsafe places. It's like um, the the uh, old expression I mentioned in my book, um, you know the three don'ts, right? Don't hang out with stupid people. Don't go to stupid places. Don't do stupid things. If you can stick to those three rules... You can avoid most of the tragedy life has to throw at you, um, especially when it comes to the use of force context.
0: Excellent. Absolutely. 100%. Now, a little off, off topic here. What sparked you and inspired you to write your book?
1: Oh, well, my ignorance. My own ignorance. Uh, so I was a, a young lawyer, maybe five or six years uh, past a bar, and I was also a competitive shooter. So I would go to a lot of matches in those days, mostly USPSA pistol matches. And uh, invariably, anyone who's been to any of those matches knows that really (laughs) you have a squad of shooters and only one guy shooting at a time. So the other eight or 10 guys are all BSing in the background. And topics would come up like self-defense scenarios. And people would say, well, that's not lawful or that is lawful. And then they'd say, well, Andrew Brank over there, he's a lawyer. He must know the answer. And they would ask me and I had no idea what was lawful or not. And I already had a concealed carry permit. So I was carrying a gun around and really didn't know what the laws were. So I thought, well, this is embarrassing. Uh, And as I say, they didn't really teach this to us in law school, maybe five minutes over a three-year law school period. So I went and looked for resources on self-defense law, and there really weren't any, not even for lawyers. I had to do primary legal research. I had to go dig up statutes, court decisions, jury instructions to learn self-defense law just for my home state. And at the time, I was living in Massachusetts. And, but in the Northeast, the states are very small. So, uh, you know, you drive half an hour in any direction, you're in a different state. So people would ask me, well, that's the law in Massachusetts, but what about Vermont? Or what about New Hampshire? Or what about Rhode Island? Or what about Connecticut? I said, oh my God, so I better look that stuff up too. And as I started looking into the laws of those other states, I began to see this common pattern, this common framework that self-defense law was not wildly different from state to state. It was about 80% the same. And in fact, when you looked at it closely, you began to recognize this pattern of these five elements, that innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness was everywhere. And after I did the Northeast, I did all the other states until I had studied all 50 states and saw the pattern was indeed everywhere. And that's what induced me to write the book because even though I knew it, I can't talk to everybody out there, but I can write a book, get that book out there so people know what the law of self-defense actually is in a plain English way. Uh, so we, I think the first edition of the book was 1996 or 1997. Uh, we're currently on the third edition, um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's proven uh, reasonably popular and uh, was sufficiently successful that it enabled me to switch my entire legal practice to doing nothing but use of force cases.
0: Oh, well, Excellent. Uh, here's another off, kind of offbeat question. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be a uh, subject matter expert teaching at places like Quantico for the FBI?
1: Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to confess I never tried to do any of that. I've never reached out to anybody I'm, I'm very busy. I, I work six or seven days a week just on my normal practice. Um, I don't need any more work, but when some place like the FBI Academy calls you and says, "Hey, do you want to come out and you know teach our our?" people, uh, it's hard to say no. Um, and, and over the years, I've made uh, friends with law enforcement everywhere, including the FBI. Um, part, the, one of the best parts is, for, well, first of all, I love teaching. I love speaking in front of people. It's, uh, it's very comfortable for me. It's fun to do um, and you can see the light bulbs going on above their head. So it's, it's very rewarding to be able to teach this stuff to, to people, especially at that high level. I mean, it's about the highest law enforcement level you can get in the U.S. Absolutely. Um, but there's also side benefits. So whenever I teach at the FBI Academy, I also get to shoot at the range. And they'll, they'll take all these old guns out of the uh, armory, these old uh, Tommy guns from the Prohibition era, Uh, It's just a a complete blast to be able to go there and and have some fun. So I I really enjoyed a great deal and very grateful to have had the opportunity to do that.
0: That's so fantastic. And it, uh, again, just goes to speak on how necessary this teaching is that you're giving. I mean, it's just needed everywhere from the top all the way to the bottom. And, and, you know, anything we can do to help promote you and what you're doing, uh, we're all about it because it's such valuable information. Um, Last question before I let you go because I know you've got a million things to do. Just for those people who don't, haven't wrapped their heads around this just yet, can you give us a guesstimate or average cost of what it looks like to go through court proceedings in a self-defense situation?
1: Yeah, sure, it's, it's really shockingly expensive. Um, so most of the cases I consult on um, are normal law-abiding citizens, never been in trouble with the law before, a day in their lives, no criminal history, uh, nothing worse than speeding tickets ever. But they got themselves in a confrontation where they got scared, they have a concealed carry permit, they presented their gun, never fired a shot, nobody injured, but they presented that gun, and folks, merely presenting your gun in an effort to change someone else's behavior, which is what you're doing when you present a gun in self-defense, that checks all the boxes for a felony aggravated assault charge. this is a very serious felony. It's good for 10 to 20 years in prison, maybe more if your state has a firearm sentencing enhancement, uh, which most do these days. So these normal law-abiding people, never been in trouble with the law a day in their lives, are now looking at a decade or two in prison. Uh, so much of the rest of their lives in prison, even though they never fired a shot, didn't hurt anybody. Um, the lead attorneys in those cases are typically getting retainers of thirty to $50,000 that's not for a trial, folks. That's pre-trial, before the trial. Uh, and then if you go to trial, it's a multiple of that. If you're involved in a killing case where you actually fired the gun and you've killed somebody and you're looking at a manslaughter or murder charge, very common to see defendants go through $150,000, $200,000 pre-trial trial Folks, before you get to the trial, and then the trials are a multiple of that. So these are huge sums of money. Um, I'm pleased to say, almost every case we consult on, we end up getting the charges dismissed, so that that defendant doesn't end up having to go to trial, uh, which is a huge win. Um, but they still spent thirty to fifty grand for their attorney, and then whatever they had to pay me to consult on the case, which is typically another five or ten thousand dollars, and they don't get that money back. That's gone. Uh, Now, what if you don't have that money? Well, if you don't have that money, well, then you're looking at a public defender. And uh, uh, people seem to have a negative idea about public defenders. I know a lot of public defenders who are fantastic attorneys, I mean, world-class attorneys, but they are all overworked, wildly overworked. And the difference between having an attorney, you're paying for yourself and you have 100% of their attention, and a public defender where it's free, quote unquote, uh, but you have 5% of their attention, is a big difference in the amount of resources that you can bring to that legal fight. And we'd all like to think we live in a world where, you know, how much money, how many resources you can bring to the legal fight should not determine justice. But that's not the world we live in. A legal fight's like any other fight, and the more resources you can bring to it, the more likely you are to be victorious in that fight. So bring in the resources that you can matters. And folks, if you're looking at spending 10 or 20 years in prison, I assure you, you will spend whatever you need to spend to mitigate that risk. You will sell your home, sell your business, sell your car, cash out your retirement fund, cash out your kid's college fund, uh, because the alternative of losing the fight is 10 or 20 years in prison. Uh, Again, all the more important reason to not find yourself subject to that criminal justice system unless you really had to.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's another reason as to why, you know, self-defense and and concealed carry insurance has become so popular for good reason, obviously. Uh, One thing you generally highlight on that is if you're going to get into something like that, make sure that it's a system where you can pick your own lawyer, right? You don't want somebody picking a lawyer for you. Um, But, you know, again, it's worth the investment to educate yourself, get further knowledge and further training. So again, if I haven't highlighted enough, right, I'm doing it for Andrew, get the book, jump on his website, subscribe to everything he's doing, take every class you can, because there is nobody putting out as much information and knowledge as he is. Uh, For those people who don't know where to find you or where to find your information, can you tell them where to go?
1: Sure. The easiest thing is just go to lawofselfdefense.com. We always have a ton of free content there, videos. uh, We often have a special offers on our books or courses or DVDs, uh, things of that sort. Uh, But you don't have to spend any money at all to learn a lot at that website. So we always encourage people, take advantage of the free stuff first, get a taste for it. If that's all you need, awesome. You don't ever have to pay us a penny. Uh, But in our experience, most of you who get a small exposure will want more. And that's how we maintain our business and pay our mortgage and all that good stuff.
0: Wonderful. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on, sharing all your amazing knowledge. We wish you all always the best. And, you know, we'll continue to promote you. For those of you who are following along, I will put all that information in the comments so you can just click over nice and easy. Um, And then again, pick up his book as quickly as you can and get to work reading. It's uh you know for those of you who are slow readers a a chapter a day is real easy to do for those of you like me who consume content I think I read the book twice in three days so uh enjoy it and uh yeah reach out if you guys have any questions until next time everybody stay safe and we'll talk to you soon